Thank you very much, Naomi, for ministering in music. I trust you can say it is well with your soul. Because we have come to faith in Christ and we trust in a sovereign God who is faithful and unchanging. As we interact with God's Word this morning, you may not come to necessarily maybe the same conclusion that I do. That's okay. Uh, We have a purpose in what we're covering this morning to challenge our thinking, to look at Scripture and seek to let Scripture speak. And if I were to give our purpose and what we interact with as it relates to God's Word this morning, it would be to emphasize how to study and interpret Scripture. You know, just as you read Scripture, to emphasize the body of Christ's blessings are spiritual and not material. God blesses us materially, don't get me wrong. He's blessed our country greatly materially. But the body of Christ's blessings are spiritual primarily. To challenge us to manifest a deep confidence in Christ, not in government. God has worked through government down through the ages. He'll continue to do so until Christ sets up his kingdom. Then to encourage the body of Christ to repent before we expect our nation to repent. We hear our nation needs to repent. I'm not doubting that in any way, shape, or form. But how about the body of Christ? I have a book here entitled, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. And I'm going to read two sentences from this book. And I want you to think whether or not you can make sense out of them. What this appears to mean, at least, in part is that when we try to enlarge ourselves and try to bring glory to ourselves, then we're actually reflecting our ego in a greater and greater way. If this is so, then it fits with the particular idea of idolatry that we have noticed earlier. You make a lot of sense out of that? Can you follow what the author, G.K. Beale, is saying? No, that's in the middle of the book, almost the middle of the book. And if it's helpful at all, I'll tell you the page number even. It's in page 140. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 7, reading together verses 11 through 22. Second Chronicles chapter 11, I'm sorry, chapter 7, verses 11 through 22. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among the people, 
If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their, heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen I've chosen and consecrated this temple so that in my name may there be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as a a covenant with David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I've given them, and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples. And though this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. As we think about this passage, there's some background information that I think is very important. In Genesis 12, 15, and 17, we find that God made a covenant with Abraham. Made in Genesis 12, then reaffirmed in chapter 15, and again in 17. And that covenant involved a land, along with seed, or descendants, and a blessing. We also find important to this passage is the Mosaic Law that was given in Exodus 20 plus. It goes beyond Exodus 20 because there are other things other than what we call the Ten Commandments. Leviticus, Deuteronomy have something to say about it. The Davidic covenant also comes to play in 1 Samuel 7, 1 through 17, along with 1 Samuel 7, 18 through 29. God made a covenant with David concerning offspring, and he would have someone on the throne, and that ties in with Christ and Christ's future reign. Now keep in mind some history when we get to Second Chronicles chapter 7, that Abraham had been called to the promised land, and he had a son by the name of Isaac. That took place around 2000 B.C. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and we know that Jacob, even though he was, even though he was younger, received the blessing. Jacob then had 12 sons, and... His children came from four different women. Joseph was one of those sons who went to Egypt. And he was a slave, but then he became second in command in Egypt. Joseph died probably around 1840 B.C. And a pharaoh came up that did not know Joseph. And the Israelites spent some 400 years in slavery. Then God raised up Moses to deliver the children of Israel from Egypt. They came out of Egypt about 1440 B.C. They spent some 40 years in the desert. While in the desert, 
the tabernacle, the commands, the directions for the tabernacle were given, the Ten Commandments were given, and so on. And they wondered because in the desert 40 years because they were disobedient. They come to the promised land. Joshua leads them across the Jordan River into the promised land. (laughs) Following the death of Joshua, we have 300 years of judges. And the judges, Israel was like yo-yo. They would go astray. God would deal with them. He would raise up a judge. They would go, go astray, and God would raise up another judge. Samuel came along, and it was during Samuel's lifetime, during the end of Samuel's lifetime, that Israel said, we want to be like the nations around us. We want a king. Saul was selected king. Following Saul came David. And following David came Solomon. And it was during Solomon's reign that Second Chronicles takes place when the temple has been built. Now, a little contextual information. David made preparations for building the temple. And if you want to turn to First Chronicles, just to kind of get a feel for the temple and what was involved, First Chronicles chapter 29, gifts that were given for the temple. Begin reading with verse 1. Then King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen, is young and inexperienced. The task is great because this palace structure is not for man but for the Lord God. With all my resources I have provided for the temple of my God, gold for the gold work, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron for the iron, wood for the wood, as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble, all these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple, my God, I now now give my personal treasure of gold and silver for the temple, my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold. That's 110 ton. And 7,000 talents of refined silver, some 260 ton or tons, for the overlaying of the walls of the buildings, for the gold work and the silver work, and for the work of, to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the families, the officials and the Tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds and the officials in charge of the king's king's work gave willingly. They gave toward the work of the temple of the Lord 5,000 talents, that's 190 tons, 10,000 denarii, 185 pounds of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, that's 375 tons, 18,000 talents of bronze, 675 tons, and 100,000 talents of iron, 3,750 tons. Anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel, Gershonite. The people rejoiced at the willingness of their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now I read that passage to drive home that when the temple was being built, 
We're talking about something very magnificent. How many of us can envision 190 tons of gold? Another 110 tons of gold on top of that. 375, 300, yeah, 375 tons of silver and so on. We're talking about a magnificent building. Then in chapters 23 through 27 of First Chronicles, David made preparation for Solomon to be king. We find Solomon becomes king. And then after Solomon becomes king, there's preparations made for the building of the temple. Solomon makes the preparations for the building of the temple. Second Chronicles 2 says, Solomon gave orders to build a temple for the name of the Lord and a royal palace for himself. He conscripted 70,000 men as carriers and 80,000 as stonecutters in the hills and 3,600 as foremen over them. Then Solomon builds a temple in chapter 3, 1 through 5. And again, if you read the account, we're dealing with something that is very magnificent, very beautiful, being built by Solomon, David's son. The ark is brought to the temple, according to Second Chronicles. And in Second Chronicles 5, we want to read several verses there. In, well, verse 13 of Second Chronicles 5, the trumpeters and singers joined in unison as one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to God. He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. God's dwelling is now in the temple of Israel. Solomon then blesses Israel in chapter 6, 1 through 11 of Second Chronicles chapter 6. In Second Chronicles 6, 12 through 42, we have Solomon's prayer of dedication. We won't take time to read that prayer, but uh, it's an interesting prayer if you're willing to take time to read it. How Solomon brings out various things, how he recalls a covenant that God had made with David, but also made with Israel. There's a dedication of the temple in chapter 7, 1 through 10. And then the passage we read earlier, the Lord appears to Solomon. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, 11 through 22, after the temple was dedicated, after David prays, I'm sorry, Solomon prays, in terms of a prayer of dedication, the Lord appears. And I want to just note several things in this passage. The Lord is responding to Solomon's prayer. Notice in verse 12. 
the latter part of the verse, the Lord is speaking. He says, I've heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. Whose prayer did he hear? He heard Solomon's prayer of dedication. I want you to also notice in verses 13 and 14 that we're dealing with the nation of Israel. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He's dealing with the nation of Israel. And he gives them a promise. But he talks about my people. And if you go back to chapter 6, verse 14, 24, 25, 26, 27, 29, 33, and 34, you'll find again the emphasis upon my people, the nation of Israel. Now, I want you to notice that he introduces the idea of rebellion. Notice in verse 13, this is the Lord speaking to Solomon. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. See, that goes back to the Davidic covenant, not the Davidic, the Mosaic covenant, where God said, you obey me, I'll bless you. You disobey me, I'll curse you. So he's introducing the idea that Israel is probably not going to do well. Now remember Israel's history. They don't have a real good history as far as obedience to God. During the period of the judges, what happened? Up and down, up and down. And you go back before that even, they did not always have a real good history. Coming out of Egypt, it wasn't real good as they're in the desert. Notice in verse 19. But if you turn away, he's referring to his people Israel, and forsake the decrees and commands I give, have given you, and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I have given them, and will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all the peoples. So again, the idea of that Israel probably will go astray, they will not follow God indefinitely. Even before it happens, Israel will go astray. Notice also in this passage that the temple is central. I just read verse 19 and 20. Look at verse 21. Although this temple is now so imposing, all who pass by will be appalled and say, Why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? People will answer, Because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he has brought all this disaster on them. God's dwelling, if you please, among Israel was in the temple. But as we advance forward, we know that the temple 
under Nebuchadnezzar was destroyed. Long before it happens, the Lord is speaking to Solomon and saying, if you turn away, you forsake my decrees and my commands and so on, then people will say, what's going on with this temple? The temple was in ruins. Why? Because of disobedience. That is later on after Solomon's time. But the temple is central. The Davidic covenant is also in this passage. Look at verse 18. Well, 17 and 18, as for you, that's Solomon, if you walk before me as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenant with David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a man to rule over Israel. See, the Davidic covenant involves ruling and Christ becomes part of that which is yet future to Solomon's time and yet future to the day and age in which we live. The Mosaic Covenant is also central. When I shut up heavens so that there is no rain, or in verse 13, or command locusts to devour the land and a plague among my people. In verse 17, if you walk before me, he says to Solomon, verse 19 but if you turn away and forsake my decrees and my commands, all goes back to the Mosaic Covenant. The Lord said, you obey, I'll bless. You disobey, I'll curse. And he is saying, Solomon, there's a possibility you'll go astray. Central, very strong in this passage is worship. Worship is written all over the passage. Worship is written all over First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, particularly as it relates to the temple. But also written all over this passage, and the temple dedication is obedience. You obey. But also disobedience. Israel as a nation, God's chosen people is all over this passage. And I will say one word a number of times when it comes to studying Scripture, reading Scripture, and it doesn't take anyone with super intelligence or super training just to keep in mind context, context, context. As you read through First Chronicles and you read through Second Chronicles, context is so very, very critical. So I read two sentences from We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry by G.K. Beale. And I can tell by your response that you were shaking your heads and saying, what's he talking about? That's because you didn't read the pages before. So when we come to a passage, whether it be Second Chronicles 7 or 1 Kings chapter 1, or we get over to Malachi chapter 1, context is very, very critical. 
So in light of what we have discussed to this point, I'm posing a question. And we'll answer it with a series of questions. Should Second Chronicles chapter 7, 11 through 22, be applied to the United States of America? Now don't jump to a conclusion yet. Let's ask some questions. Is the United States in a covenant relationship with the Lord? Is the United States in a covenant relationship with the Lord? Anyone willing to respond this way or this way? <laughs> I see a couple of heads going, no. You can study American history. The Lord, or, uh, America is not in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Our country was founded upon Judeo-Christian values. Founded upon, in some respects, Scripture it is a republic or democracy. And that is a very good form of government as you live in a sinful fallen world. But we're still not in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Good foundation. God has used our form of government. I will pose a second question. Is the United States living under the Mosaic law with blessings and curses? Is the United States living under the Mosaic law with blessings and curses? <coughs> a couple of heads I see going, no. We're not in that covenant relationship. Now, I realize the Ten Commandments are in some public buildings. That's fine. And they have good stuff to say. And if the Ten Commandments are obeyed, that makes a big difference in relating to God and how people relate but we're still not in a covenant relationship in that we live under the Mosaic law. If we are, then we better start uh, stoning some people. Probably some of us here may have been stoned in the past. You know, just an extreme example. Is the United, is the United States the Lord's chosen nation? Again, I see some heads going, no, I don't think you can demonstrate that in any way, shape, or form from Scripture or otherwise. Has the Lord promised any United States president eternal reign? As he did David. Who who would you like? Bush 1 or Bush 2 or Clinton or Reagan or, you know... Eisenhower. (laughs) We don't have that promise. Does the United States have a central place of worship called the temple of the Lord where he has filled it with his glory? And again, I think the answer is pretty obvious. No. Can we claim the United States is the chosen people of the Lord? I don't think we can. Has the United States ever experienced judgment from the Lord by being exiled to other countries? We have never experienced that. Israel did after, you know, the temple. Get into 
a number of kings beyond Solomon, the kingdom divided, and the northern kingdom went into exile never to return. The southern kingdom went into Babylonian exile but did return. We have not experienced that as a nation. Can other countries say about the Lord's temple, a physical central place of worship in the United States, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to his temple? And again, I don't think other nations can say that. God obviously has used nations down through history. Whether it be Babylon, the Assyrian Empire, whether it be the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, whether it be the United States of America, whether it be England or Germany, God is at work, he's sovereign, and he is in control. But I think we need to be careful that we don't take some promises that were given to someone else and make them ours. So a couple factors to consider. America may have been founded upon Judeo-Christian values, but that does not make us God's chosen people. Why should we be God's chosen people rather than England? Well, we were founded on a different foundation But there's no biblical basis for saying we have the same covenant that Israel did. Nowhere in Scripture is there any any indication the Lord chose the United States as he chose Abraham. The Lord took the action in calling Abraham and then Jacob, or Isaac and then Jacob. The body of Christ today is blessed by God in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 1, with spiritual blessings. The body of Christ is not an earthly nation, but aliens and strangers in this world. The body of Christ is Christ's chosen people today said Christ, chosen people today. Then Christ's first coming was not to set up an earthly kingdom. He came to provide eternal life. He will set up an earthly kingdom in the future after the body of Christ is with him in glory. And that's brought out in the latter part of Revelation. But when that kingdom is set up, That ties in with the Davidic covenant, ties in with the nation of Israel. The body of Christ is already going to have been taken out. And in some way, shape, or form, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they're going to rule and reign with Christ. The many blessings and promises of the epistles are given to the body of Christ as aliens and strangers in this world. They're unseen, they're spiritual blessings. Skip one or two and then go back to what I brought up at the beginning. Part of why I discussed what we did this morning is to emphasize 
as we read through Scripture, seek to interpret it correctly. Secondly, to emphasize that the body of Christ's blessings are spiritual, not material. Israel's blessings were largely material. They're going to have good crops. Their animals are going to reproduce. They're going to get a land. And if you don't obey, then those things are going to be taken away from you. But the body of Christ's blessings, we have redemption, we have forgiveness, justification, sanctification, along with a host of other things. And then to challenge us to manifest the deep confidence in Christ, not government. We have the privilege of voting. I think we should vote. I think God has worked in our history down through the ages. Some of it may be good, some of it not be good. But our confidence is not in our government. Our confidence is in God and in Christ. So we go to the polls on Tuesday, and it's been interesting just to follow. And some people say, I'm ready for it to be over. I'm done with it, you know. But can we rest in God's sovereignty? Rest in Christ. If our country is blessed by God in the sense that some things happen that move it in what we would call a godly direction, some people will say, praise the Lord. But what if our country goes in the opposite direction and drifts from God and drifts from some of the ways that or areas we were founded upon? Are we still willing to say praise God? Our confidence is in Christ. So Wednesday morning, or if you stay up late Tuesday night, and you see who's elected to president, who's elected to various other races, are you going to say, oh no, or yes? Are you going to say, my confidence is in Christ? God is sovereign. He's working out his purpose. We as a body, or as the body of Christ in the United States, study scripture. We understand scripture. We see God has worked in Israel. He has worked in other nations. He has used other nations. And we rest in the Lord, not government. We can be involved in government as Daniel was, or as Joseph was. We can vote. And that's a privilege we have in our country, and I think we should exercise that. But our confidence is still in the Lord. To encourage the body of Christ to repent before we expect our nation to repent. Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14 is used at times to call our nation to repentance. I think if you're going to use that at all, we probably would need to make the application to the body of Christ. But again, I think it involves Israel. And it's dealing with Israel. But he, Israel is told if they repent. So if you're going to make any application at all, I think it would be wiser to make it to the body of Christ today. God's chosen people. 
We pray for our nation. I'm not saying don't pray. We vote, and I'm not saying don't vote. We say we select someone that I'm not really excited about. God has used people in the past. If you read some of the rulers in England, prime ministers in England, anyone who was prime minister during World War II? Churchill, do you ever read about his personal life? He wasn't an angel. But yet we hold Churchill in great esteem. And that's fine. My point is that God is not limited in how he works in a nation to the moral life of a leader. If you go back to the time of Christ, of Christ's birth, and when he was crucified, there were Roman rulers that would make you Hefner look pretty decent. God is sovereign. We rest in him. And if anyone needs to repent, I'm not saying our nation doesn't need to. I think it's the body, you know, if we're going to use this passage for an application. Just looking at ourselves as the body of Christ in America and say, what are our sins that we need to confess? And if that were to take place, then say maybe we should call our nation to do that. But our nation is not in a covenant relationship with the Lord, but the body of Christ is. We claim we want the Bible and prayer back in schools which may be good. But is the Bible and prayer in the homes of the body of Christ? How many of us here, not looking for a show of hands, can say, my father, my mother made sure that scripture was read in our home and we took time to pray together. We say we want it back in our schools, and I'm not knocking that in any way, shape, or form. But is it, is it in the homes of the body of Christ? We claim divorce in America is great. When I say great, there's a large number. How many marriages in the body of Christ can be held up and say they model Christ in the church? I'm deeply concerned about our nation. I'm deeply concerned about the body of Christ too. That we correctly interpret scripture. And if the body of Christ needs to repent, we're willing to acknowledge that and turn from it. But let's not push on our nation what the body of Christ should be modeling. Because the body of Christ is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, as we read and study and interpret Scripture, it's important to see it in context. In light of 
Second Chronicles chapter 7. We know the primary context is to Israel. It involves the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants. The passage is full of worship. The passage is full of obedience and disobedience. And much for us to grasp there as you reveal yourself, as you communicate, you desire obedience, you desire worship. May we as believers worship you, worship Christ. May we understand, Father, as we live in our country, how to live well as your chosen people, as a body of Christ, to be sought, to be light, to impact the area in which we live, the job we go to, our community, our family, by living in a deep sensitivity to you. And I guess, Father, in light of what we have discussed this morning, I would pray. As I've heard many times in, over the years that we need revival in America, that we as the body of Christ in our great country might be willing to stop and examine our own lives, how we live and how we respond. and model to our country a brokenness, a humbleness that you use to bring us into a greater and greater Christ-likeness. Thank you, Father, for your grace. In spite of Israel disobeying, you came back to them again and again. And in spite of the body of Christ struggling down through the pages of church history, you continue to work. We're so grateful for that. We love you. We want to be faithful to you. And thank you that in Christ, there's a power that is at work within us beyond what we can ask or comprehend. And we commit ourselves to you, Father, because in your grace, through Christ, you keep us. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.